there was a long time where I just thought doing something was productive and that I needed to spin my wheels and consume as much information. And that's naturally my personality is to just do a lot. And so I've actually, you know, kind of had a motto to do less uh, at times and try to do more thinking and less doing. So setting, you know, direction is more important than speed. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering business, ideas, entrepreneurship, investing, and life. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks for joining me today on the Ford Podcast. Excited to chat with my friend, Rhett Carter, the founder and CEO of Heights Investment Partners, a long-term value-oriented stock partnership. We cover a lot about the market, how he thinks for himself and how he generates ideas, where he sees the world going and major macro themes that are converging and just a really brilliant talk about how the world works in investing and in stocks. It's very often uh, that you have a chance to make bets on your ideas and he has been very successful in doing that. So excited for y'all to listen. Thank you. Heights Investment Partners is a registered investment advisor based in Houston, Texas. All advisory services are offered through Heights Investment Partners, a registered investment advisor. I may make some uh, forward-looking statements were subject to change at any time. Nothing I say should be relied upon as investment advice. I am excited to have a great friend of mine today, Rhett Carter, on the podcast with me today. Rhett is the CEO of Heights Investment Partners down in Houston, Texas, and uh, we will be having a fascinating conversation on the investment world today. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me, Chris. Good to see you. Yep. Great to have you in Fort Worth. Just to get started, uh, why don't you tell everybody just kind of your career background and what's led you to Heights? Sure. So growing up, I grew up in the Fort Worth area and uh, my dad was actually an entrepreneur in the commercial real estate industry. And I, I thought I was always going to do commercial real estate and uh, just because, you know, followed him around doing stuff like that. And I noticed, though, in college at TCU, I was increasingly invest, uh, interested in the investment markets and just naturally was spending my time monitoring the public markets, publicly traded companies, and just learning as much as I could about it. And uh, so I just decided that was an interest I needed to pursue and thought about people I may know in the investment industry. And there's a guy in Dallas named Shad Rowe, who's run a fund in Dallas for uh, 30 plus years, Greenbrier Partners. And I called Shad about opportunities and um, he was pretty tough on me, but he, he basically said I could come work for him that summer for free. And uh, the day I got there, he had a stack of papers on my desk and said, read all these before you come talk to me. And it was basically every Berkshire Hathaway letter to shareholders for the last 20 years. And that began my investment career. And a lot of that was luck in the sense that I had the good fortune to be introduced to someone who, who had a huge impact on my life from there, and it just sparked, sparked the interest, and I never really looked back, and, I, and I've just thought of it as a, as a passion ever since then. 
going back to school that senior year, I interned with Luther King Capital here in Fort Worth through TCU, and uh, so kept pursuing the investment management pursuit. Ended up in Houston, uh, worked doing sell-side research uh, for an investment bank there, focused on the oil and gas sector for a number of years. Was recruited over by a client, an institutional asset manager in, in Houston, where we ran three different equity funds, and I was uh, did let up the research on one of the funds. So our clients were big institutions, pensions, endowments, et cetera, uh, multi-billion dollar portfolios, and did that for a number of years and, and loved what I was doing. Uh, but I did, I did always know I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, uh, both through influence of, of my dad and through Shad. And I knew there probably wasn't going to be a better time. I knew there wouldn't be a perfect time, but I thought that I had a good idea for an offering that I could take directly to individuals. And it checked a lot of boxes for me as far as doing something entrepreneurial, um, having the challenge of, of the pressure being on me, but also getting a lot more purpose out of the work for several reasons. Yeah, that's awesome. There's a lot you said there. One of the, the first things that I thought about was you worked for free and you worked for somebody that became your mentor. I think it is, it's a common theme, uh, doing things that you don't get paid for can sometimes be the, the biggest value creation in your life how has uh how's having shad in your life impacted you well you know i thought about that i thought that's something you might ask about and if i think back on the biggest impact that had on me was it it sparked confidence so being being a young guy really unsure about you know what the the quote-unquote real world had ahead of me uh coming out of college you know you wonder you know how how much confidence do you really have and and what can i do and realizing there was subject I was really interested in and wanted to pursue. And then at the same time, I had a guy who was extremely respected in the industry telling me I was good enough to do it. And that that just sparked all the confidence in the world to to really jump and, and pursue with all I had. And, and that's just lasted. One of the best things he probably did was put that stack of paper on your desk. The, the Berkshire letters for anybody that doesn't know investing or business, you could just go read about 20 years of those letters, and it's business nirvana, in my opinion. Definitely. Buffett follows uh, Benjamin Graham, the, a value-based investor. Is that what Shad was doing, and is that what you're doing? Well, if you if you look at the arc of Buffett's career, he, he started in the Benjamin Graham world of uh, cigar butt investing, as they call it, where really has little to do with the quality of the business and it, it was more based on you know buying a dollar for 50 cents and that was Ben Graham's major philosophy there's a lot of other components to it and that worked really well in Ben Graham's era which was post the Great Depression and, a very, and the markets were much more inefficient back then so there were a lot more companies laying around like that as Buffett's career evolved and he met Munger Munger who was uh, you know, I'd been living on the West Coast and I think probably exposed to Philip Fisher quite a bit, which that's a great book, Common Stocks, Uncommon Profits. Uh, and Phil Fisher was based on the West Coast. And it was a school of thought that was much more about the quality of business over everything. And so very focused on the intangibles of the business, the return on invested capital and and paying a reasonable price for that. And so Berkshire's kind of followed that evolution. Buffett's followed that evolution. And I think Shad followed that evolution to an extent. By the time I met Shad, he had kind of evolved from the deep discount, deep value to a high focus on the overall quality of the business. And the, the, 
summary quote of it. It's the Charlie Munger quote. It's better to, was it pay a um, fair price for a great business than a, a great price for a fair business. And so that's, that's kind of how you think about value. Definitely. I mean, it's all value based on what's the cash flow the business can generate. And so, yes, I'm a value investor from that standpoint, but you know, if you're holding a company for a long term, what's going to matter more than anything is the quality of the business and the trajectory of the ultimate cash flows of the business. And uh, there's a lot of benefits that come to investing that way, in my opinion, as opposed to just buying a dollar for 50 cents. So we'll kind of get into the evolution of how Heights came to be. So you, you, you had several jobs. Uh, you learned a lot about the investment world. You mentioned that you had a product that you thought that you could bring that maybe was different or gave you a unique competitive advantage. What was kind of the tipping point to start your own? And then what was that kind of idea that you had that separated yourself? Yeah, so the, the tipping point, I would say it was just, I was waking up in the middle of the night eager to do this. Yeah. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And my wife, you know, she was just like, Rhett, you can't keep waking up at three in the morning because it's waking all this mm-hmm. up. And I would just wake up I got to do this. I got to do this. But then there were all those things saying it's not the right time. You know, you're, you know, you're, you're young kids are coming, et cetera. So it was just all these things not to do it. And I, and I met with a mentor of mine in Houston and an entrepreneur in the oil and gas space. And he said, look, you're, there's never going to be a right time. So you have to just jump. And, uh, this might sound kind of corny, but I remember waking up one night at like three in the morning, one of those things. And for some reason, I just like, I couldn't sleep. And I turned on the uh, Steve Jobs Stanford commencement speech when, uh, you know, I can't remember what year he gave that speech, but it's about 20 minutes. And it's a great speech if you haven't seen it. And one of the things he said is you have to trust the stars will align and to follow your passions and just trusting that that's going to shape up. And I just closed the laptop and I said, all right, I'm going to do this. And I went back to bed. And the next morning I, I went and told the people I worked with that I, I needed to go do my own thing. That's awesome. I mean, it is the common thread for everybody that that takes the leap. There is not a right time. There's not like this welcoming ceremony to entrepreneurship. It's usually in a vulnerable moment where your mind has been racing for way too long. And it's like, all right, I'm just going to do it. Yeah, it wasn't going to stop. And it's a terrible (laughs) answer to people that come and ask like, well, when when do you think I should? I, I usually tell them this isn't the answer you want, but you just have to go do it which either puts it on your plate as uh, you either don't really want to do it and you just kind of want to talk about it. Or if it's as simple as doing it, it's kind of, you know, put the fire to you is like, all right, what's holding you back at this point? And uh, saying, oh, I don't have the capital or I don't have this. I don't have that. Most people don't have a lot of things, especially if you're young getting started. So that's an awesome story. What was it that you felt like you could offer that you weren't seeing in the market? Right. So there were a few things, but I, I think that if you look at the way money management is set up, most of it is geared towards managing money for institutions. So the asset managers that are actually picking the stocks, it's skewed towards institutions. Uh, most of those institutions don't pay taxes. And to access those asset managers, you often have to go through a middleman. And so I looked at it when you when you're set up through the middleman, there's two layers of fees. You're paying the broker in the middle of fee and you're paying the asset manager fee. A lot of people don't realize there's two layers of fees there. And then at the same time, that asset manager, their large clients are tax-free institutions, so they don't really care about the tax consequences of the investments. 
So I said, I think I can create something that's more cost efficient in the sense that there's no middleman and the fees cut out. And also my investing style is very tax efficient. And so I can go to individuals and say, hey, this is also very tax efficient. And hopefully being any kind of unconstrained in in an organization, hopefully I thought that would make me a better investor having my own canvas to express how I wanted to invest. So I thought that would hopefully make me more effective as well. And also I think there is value, or I know there's value in a direct one-on-one relationship with the person who's actually making the decisions and, and calling the shots with your capital. And so I thought that just the value of the relationships would matter quite a bit as well. Does getting larger create, will that push you farther away from the initial thesis? Like if you were to get too big, would you need a middleman? Or if you got too big, would you be the person? So that's, um, no, I, I don't think so. And, and a big part of what I'm trying to do is, is stay very lean and very lean in the sense that honestly, if you, if you look at a lot of the best money managers, they throughout time, they have been very lean organizations and it's very just focused on the investing um, as opposed to marketing and, and growing the business as big as possible. And I'm doing this out of the love of investing and, and I more than anything care about the performance and the track record. Of course, I'd be lying if I, if I said I didn't want to scale it to an extent to, to make profits in that regard, but not, not without, I wouldn't do that if it's compromising the investment process. So no, as far as the scaling standpoint, I think I can, there's plenty of room to run uh, with one-on-one relationships with individuals as long as I maintain it to be pretty lean from a, a cost and personnel standpoint. So it would be similar to a Berkshire type type model where, you know, Warren's got 500 billion under his watch and he's given, you know, a couple, maybe 10 billion to a few other people. But the amount, I guess it changes the scope of what you can invest in, but not the time that it takes you to invest really. Right. And, and, and also one, you know, that, that, that would be flattering company if I get there after, you know, another 40 years. But yeah, and a lot of the companies I'm investing in are larger. So it's like the, the, the volume of the shares and the float and so forth isn't a, isn't a gating factor into the scaling of the kind of scale I'm talking about. And so it, it doesn't, which is something you see a lot with fund managers. And I, and I, one, my style just kind of avoids it, but two, um, and avoiding it intentionally, but you see, a lot of fund managers do well when they're small and can invest in small illiquid securities that aren't as well followed and so forth, which isn't my approach. But then when they scale and they get big, because naturally, you know, money's wanting to come in the door, it's hard for them not to take it, then they can't do the same things that made them successful in the first place. But again, like the, the companies I'm investing in, they're all over a billion in market cap. And, and so the, the depth the scalability is there to, to not really be an issue from an AUM standpoint. I've been really excited about this conversation all week, really, because being an investor, number one, but in the stock world, just the uh, the way that people think that are in this industry is just always fascinates me. So I just have a series of things I want to talk about, starting with how do you like begin to think about an idea? And just for everybody listening, like the context, there are thousands of stocks Things are changing every day. Your good idea from last year is now a bad idea. Something needs to change. So like, how do you start forming thoughts about what you're interested in? Sure, so a lot of it is just observation. And, you know, I don't know, I I think about it a lot like investors in the public markets, in my opinion, are a lot like risk-taking journalists in the sense that you're a journalist in the sense that you're kind of sleuthing and doing research 
and you have to have your eyes open to what's happening in the world and what's happening around you. Uh, but the, the big difference and, and the part I like is that you're actually taking risk for your ideas. And, and I love that aspect of it. As far as finding ideas, they can come from all areas. Um, but my approach for the most part, just to the framework on the, on the high level is a lot of it starts thematically. So what are themes that are going on in the world that, that seem inevitable? And I got a, there's a term, the inevitable march of events. And so I'm looking at things are what themes are inevitable and almost sure to happen. And then who benefits from those? What industries benefit from those? And narrowing it down from there, okay, well, what part of the industry, what part of the value chain is sustainable and gonna have the same you know, profit profile in the future and not get disrupted and so forth? And where do I wanna be in that? And then where are the best companies in that? So it's kind of a process of deduction, starting very high level thematic, and then working my way down into the, the micro. And then I have a very specific framework of uh, about six criteria that, that informs my decision. Can you share those six criteria? Sure, sure. So it starts when I'm down to the actual like business level. It has to be in a big growing market uh, with the wind at their back, basically. And then the business has to have a demonstrated history of profitability. So free cash flow positive and a, and a profitable business model from a you know, unit economic standpoint often. And then when you think about anything in capitalism, if it's profitable, people are going to come try to take it away. So there has to be a unique situation that ensures that that profitability will remain intact. And that's the concept Buffett talks about with being a moat. And I think about it, is this company adding value to their surrounding ecosystem? And most specifically, are they adding value to their customers? And are they adding value to um, their partners around them? Because if a company's adding value to the system around them, then the stakeholders want that company to stay in place. And it's going to be very hard to rip that company up from that. And so therefore their profitability will will stay in place or remain intact. On top of that, it needs to be a management team that has a um, is owner minded. So they think like a long term owner of the business because we're investing like long term owners of the business. And so the management team has to be aligned with us in that way. So as a function, you watch their decision making, how they pay themselves, do they own stock, et cetera. So that's a, a very, very big one. From there, the valuation just has to be sensible. So like I said, I'm not looking for, um, I'm not looking for something that is trade, a dollar trading for 50 cents. I'm willing to pay a dollar for a dollar if I think that that dollar is gonna compound to $4 over the next you know, 10 years or so, or something like that. And then the balance sheet is important. So I, I don't wanna invest in a company with too much leverage relative to their free cash flow just because it, it creates a fragility and a dependence on the kindness of strangers, which I don't, you know, things happen and I don't, I don't want to be involved in that. So try to avoid that as well. And those are the main, the main criteria that I think about when evaluating a business. So one of the things that Buffett stayed away from traditionally is a lot of tech stocks. And just in looking at some of your letters, you are in tech stocks and his reason for being out of them is he has no idea how to value them or where they'll be in five years. Sure. How do you think about that? Yep. Well, in one, you know, obviously Buffett is, uh, and I think this is a, a bigger discussion on, on life, which is one thing I like about investing. I think a lot of it's a reflection of life, but you have to play your game and, and stick to your circle of competence and do what, what you know. And maybe that's, you know, certain people aren't comfortable with certain parts of, of businesses or industries. So each person's circle of competence is going to be different. Yeah. And so 
that's that's one thing I would say. But then also, if you look at the tech companies today versus tech companies in the 70s, 80s and, and 90s, they're really different animals. Um, back, you know, in the in the prior decades, things changed so fast and they, they do in technology. But when you're looking at more of like a traditional IT company or a chip company or something like that, it's the it's physical technology that would change quickly and those businesses would be made obsolete. Whereas a lot of the tech companies today are more like distribution companies or, you know, hyperscale, almost utility like companies that to that their customers love them. So it's it's very difficult to disrupt that that side of it. Then there are also network effects and scale effects and capital barriers and things like that that actually have created real moats as opposed to the fast changing technology in the late 20th century, I would say. Once you figure out a theme that you like and you really start digging in, like how do you um, learn, read, what do you read? Like what, now that you've picked something you like, how do you get yourself comfortable with it? Yeah, so it's it's always a little bit different, but the things that are always the same is I'm, I study primary financials. So from the SEC, you can get them online, um, sec.gov, you can find 10Ks, 10Qs, et cetera. So I, that's where I do most of my research is in the public filings. Then I read, I generally start with the 10K, read all the recent earnings transcripts and press releases. So those are, those are out quarterly and you can get those online as well. Read those, uh, build financial model, uh, what, you know, it's a three-statement financial model with projections. It helps me just kind of break down the business and evaluate it. And then from there is where it's always different. And that can involve visiting stores, talking to customers, talking to competitors, suppliers, et cetera. Just kind of, and that's actually going back to, to Phil Fisher. It's a weird term, but Philip Fisher, the guy I was talking about from California, influenced Munger, called it scuttlebutt. And it's basically just going around to different firsthand primary experiences and it's not something people on Wall Street were doing or are doing. And, and so getting that firsthand experience and, and developing a feel and that process is always a little bit different. So to your point on the tech is like our generation, it's really all we know. We've been so immersed. Buffett just never lived in a world of the technology. So do you think your, you know, even way of thinking about that is just a byproduct of how old you are in the generation you are in? I definitely think without question, I think that's some of it. And, you know, it's interesting though, if you notice Buffett, his biggest position now is Apple. Yeah. And um, so he has, he has come around on that and, and he has said, you know, him and Munger both talk about how that, I think it's a sign that to them that they're learning or they're evolving and that they're still learning it, you know, 87 and 91 or whatever it is. And then they recently just took a stake in Oracle. And I think some of that is actually due to, they have two lieutenants, uh, Ted Weschler and Todd Combs, who they've hired to bring, you know, and they're, they're not, you know, I don't know, they're maybe in their 50s, 40s or 50s, and, and that they've had an influence on them. So I think that's just an example of the generation. But yeah, I think definitely, even with some of my investors, you know, one thing they like is that I can kind of interpret uh, what's happening in technology to them and, and help them understand because they can see it. They can see it's changing the world, but yep. they need someone who, who's experienced it firsthand to kind of translate it. How you mentioned in your 2018 letter that you got to, uh, I guess, see or visit with Warren and Charlie and Jeff Bezos. Was that not 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 one on one, not one on one, yeah, but it, in person. Like, OK, cool. What was that experience like and where? Jeff Bezos was at SMU, gave a speech over there at the Bush Library, uh, a discussion on leadership. 
And I mean, you know, maybe I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a sucker uh, for charisma, but it was uh, next level brilliance in my opinion. And I, I personally believe what Warren Buffett was to investing or what John Rockefeller was to industry, specifically for him, refining and oil and gas, Bezos is to technology and it's the right man at the right time for his industry. Yeah. And, and so it, I would encourage anybody, regardless of what you think of him or the company to go on YouTube and just watch some of those interviews. And there's a lot of life lessons in there. And so it's not just about business. And we've seen recently, he's not a, not a perfect man, but there's a lot of wisdom in there uh, that can be applied to any industry. And so it's almost going to that Bezos speech or watching some of his interviews on YouTube, which is such a blessing that we have that resource in YouTube. The, the Buffett and Munger was at the uh, Omaha, at the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholders meeting. So I've been to that the last you know, handful of years, every year, and it's kind of a zoo and it, yeah. and it gets to be more of a zoo uh, every year and you can watch it online. Now you can stream it, but I go, cause I just think, you know, you never know who you're going to meet there and being in the same room is, is pretty powerful. And I've met, I've met some fellow Berkshire employees who um, were extremely generous with their time and, and helpful. But um, I think just the more you can, at least for me, I can't get enough of that kind of stuff. And the more I just beat my head, beat myself over the head with those concepts and wisdom, uh, I just, I don't think you can take too much of it. I love it. Yeah. The, this podcast, YouTube, I mean, just the availability to information. I have watched every Jeff Bezos uh, interview on the David Rubenstein show, yeah, and I've, I've watched them one. all. I've watched every uh, uh, annual meeting from 99 to 2018. There's about six hours each. I mean, you really have to be a nerd. It's one thing to watch one, to watch 20 years of it. I have not been live do you have to actually own stock to go? Yeah, you can buy a B share. So you, you can, can buy one B share yeah, for two hundred. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, you can buy a B share for two hundred dollars, and you can just show up with your statement. And they'll give you a pass. How do you determine when something that's been a good idea that's in your portfolio is kind of no longer the idea that it was? First of all, one of the most common mistakes I think public market investors make is they sell their winners too soon, and that's a big thing I learned from Shad and then also watching other greats. If you look at them, they, they hold Peter Lynch used to call it, uh, Peter Lynch, a great investor as well. Fidelity for a number of years. He says, you know, we don't, we don't cut our flowers to water our weeds. And that's one of the most common mistakes I think people make in the public market. So it takes a lot for me to uproot and get rid of something that I love. When I, there are reasons to sell though. And, and a few of them are one, you're just flat out wrong. So I just maybe miscalculated, misevaluated the business and just my analysis was wrong. So that, that can happen. Another is management starts taking the company in a different direction than, than one thinks makes sense. So, you know, a CEO's capital allocation decisions is extremely important in the uh, creation of value of the business over the long term, And it's something that gets lost a lot. And there's a great book on that, actually, um, The Outsiders by William Thorndike. It's all about capital allocation and, and Buffett has some great discussions on that, but how the manager's allocating the capital is very important. And if they start allocating our capital, which that's what it is, it's our capital as investors in, in areas that don't make sense or we firmly disagree with, that's another one. And then another common one is uh, 
the the competitive environment changes and so things happen very fast uh, competition's always changing and if competition starts making inroads that we didn't foresee that starts impacting the business's ability to earn the profits we thought then then I'll get out I would have to imagine there's a difference in buying something you love and it drops 20% maybe because the market's down or just some macro factor, but then a difference in buying something you love that drops 20% not because of a macro factor. Like, do you set these kind of like reminders that if this goes here in lieu of anything I can actually, or in lieu of something, how am I trying to say it? that 20% down because of something that's not actually the business you would hold on, but in the event it just keeps going down, as long as your idea stays in place, you're good holding through a down period. Oh, definitely. Okay. Definitely. And, and I'd love the opportunity to add in that situation. And a lot of companies buy back stock. And that's another thing, you know, when a company's buying back their own stock at a discounted price, say it's gone down 20% and, a company's buying back their own stock. Well, that's effectively us buying out our, our equity partners at a discounted price. And I think people lose sight of that a lot, but yeah, it's, it's, if I love the company and it goes down, it generally, it, it's can be, it's nerve wracking. Cause it's just, it'd be impossible for it not to be, but it's also exciting. How much time do you spend thinking about new ideas versus kind of staying on top of the ideas that you already have in your portfolio? That's a great question. You know, I don't, I don't know that I have a good answer because it kind of blends together all the time. Like for example, right now we're in the middle of earnings season. So I'm getting quarterly reports from existing holdings and that's all my focus. And so more of the focus is on existing holdings because I'm always thinking what could go wrong? What am I missing? Should I own more of something? Should I own less of something, et cetera? And just thinking about that. So more time is spent, you know, I guess I, maybe I'd call that farming, focusing on what I have. And then, but I, I am always on the outlook for new, new names as well, new investments. And so I'm churning through, always kind of keeping my eyes open and looking through it. There's always something in the hopper that I'm working on as far as a potential new ad as well. But more of my, efforts go into what I hold because what you don't hold can't hurt you. Right. And what you do hold can, you know, be devastating. So you have to, to be extremely vigilant on yep. that. We are, uh, even in our business, we, you know, you spend a lot of time in a business like ours, you are working on new deals, your portfolio grows and knowing like the small business pain for us has been knowing when to shift attention, like when more resources need to come on to what we have and what you have can kill you, what you don't have can't kill you yet. And so uh, just interesting to hear how you think about new versus what you have. How many new companies do you bring in on a given year? Um, Is there like an average or it's just totally? It's gonna be different every year, but in general, what what I tell people is expect to find one or two new ideas a year and probably sell one or two stocks a year. And so it's a lot of work for very little action. And so, yeah, it's generally on average that, but maybe one year it's three and then a couple years it's zero. But on average, I think it's gonna be about one or two ideas a year. Do you have a devil's advocate, somebody to tell you, like to tell you your Not, not at the firm, uh, but there are several people I collaborate with, you know, through, through my network. Um, and then I'm just always seeking out contra information and seeking out where could I be wrong and, and 
emphasizing that a lot. So there's people I, I talk through things with, I have a checklist I go through, but not directly. Yep. How do you think about unlearning? Like the world is changing quick. Technology is exponentially growing and, and every, it seems like every three or four years, the way we look at the world changes. How do you know when what you've believed is no longer something you need to believe in anymore? That's, that's such a great question. There's like the John Maynard Keynes quote of, of like, it's not the new, it's not learning new ideas. It's so difficult. It's getting rid of, getting rid of old ones. Yep. And I think about that all the time, because if you think about just a good example, and I'm sure you see this a lot in your business, but people who kind of started their careers in the early eighties and so forth, they became accustomed to seeing, you know, double digit interest rates. And so they say, you know, when I've met with people over the last decade, they're like, well, interest rates are definitely going back up. You know, my, like son, when, when I was your age, my mortgage was 15%, you know, yeah. and uh, things like that. And, and it's, and so I think about, well, people's experiences shape, shape their opinions and shape their outlook. And so I try to be really cognizant of that by just being self-aware um, and asking myself where I could be wrong, but there's no doubt there's going to be biases. And yeah, we've had a great, run in tech in the last, you know, decade or so. And, and that's probably shapes my biases towards tech, for example. And so I have to be aware of that and can't, can't fall in love with it and can't right. be emotional about it and have to be objective in the decisions. And then also, you know, like for interest rates, for example, you know, starting our career in, in, in a very low interest rate environment, I think we're prone to be anchored to that low interest rate for a lot of our lives. And hey, wild surprises happen in the economy and capital markets. So I think, you know, to use a, a Bezos quote, it's always day one or a beginner's mind, right? And yep. so I try to periodically just say, like, if I was starting today, what would this look like? And and then just ask myself where I'm wrong. But it, it's certainly, it's very difficult. Yep. One of the things I really learned last year was, you know, we've looked at people a lot in the past. Maybe some people have. I actually haven't. But you hear about people's IQ and that could be a dictator to the success of their life or their career or, or whatever that may be. And they said that the new thing to really focus on is AQ, which is your adaptability quotient, and that we're entering a world where you'll almost have to rethink about how you think about the world four or five, six times during a lifetime. Whereas wow. 50 years ago, it was the way it was, and you sure. could kind of lean on that for the rest of time. And just, it really got me thinking about unlearning things, being adaptable, which is tough because you want to have your deep rooted beliefs, but at the same time, we're living in a, such a fast paced environment that you just don't know when one of them is about to get knocked out from under you. And you know, you don't ever want to tell yourself you're wrong. And I try and find myself more throughout the days now, not trying to see what I'm right about, but what I'm wrong about. Yeah. And if I look at the best investors that I'm familiar with, they've all evolved. And, you know, complaining isn't a strategy. And so when what you're doing before isn't working anymore, maybe it's time to go back to the drawing board and re-examine has the playing field changed. And I also think that's a problem when if you're with a big investment organization, like I was kind of talking about perhaps being on my own and having my own canvas hopefully would make me more effective. And I think that's part of it is it's it's extremely difficult to pivot and and rotate when you're part of a big organization and people view you a certain way and view you as well these guys are you know this style of investing in this and it makes it impossible for them to pivot right 
How do you think about a successful year when you're long-term investing, you really don't judge yourself in any one year, but how do you know you've had a good year? So yeah, I, I try not to get caught up in, in the performance of any given year too much, but you know, good year performance wise is a good year and investors are happy. I'm happy. Does that mean you beat the market or? Yeah. Well, being up first of all would yeah. be, would be, so being, being positive, making, making people money, um, expanding our capital base in that way would, would be successful beating the market even better. And I think, you know, imp just improving, getting better and got to be getting better all the time. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know if any one year is it, you're quickly kind of moving on to the next one uh, when one year ends. But uh, I think it, it's just improving, getting better, because that's one thing that's tricky about public market investing is as humans, we're wired to, to respond to immediate feedback. Right. right. So it's like we in back in the wild or something, we ate a, a, a berry that tasted bad. And it's like, oh, that's poisonous. Don't eat that berry. Where in modern times or in things like investing, the feedback that's relevant is deferred. Right. And the immediate feedback isn't even relevant at all. And But our human nature prioritizes that immediate feedback. And so it's almost having kind of a detached view to the immediate results and staying focused on on the long haul and in that way it's kind of like you're never really satisfied yep but you know if your process is improving and you're doing the right work then that's that's i think a good year so really the process as opposed to the the results yep no it's it wasn't a technically a trick question but one of the common threads that i've really learned from the best business people and the best entrepreneurs a year is just a calendar date, but the, the folks that really are masters of their craft, they just aren't looking at anything in a month or a year, or it's just kind of persistent, slow, slow growth, refine the process. And so it wasn't necessarily a trick question in the sense of just understanding how you think about what, what you would be proud about in a year, but um, especially in value investing, it just seems to me like you won't know until the day before you meet your maker, whether, yeah, whether right. it was a job well done. That's right. Yeah. And it's just time. And, and that's one of the things that's, that's, um, I'm sure people doing entrepreneurial ventures can, can identify with, but then also particularly in investing, just the amount of patience it takes is, is wild. And, and knowing that, Hey, this, the end goal may not be uh, what you expect it to be. You may not reach it. And so you kind of have to have this, I mean, amazing amount of faith. Time takes time. Do you think the temperament for investing can be learned or is it like a gift you're given when you're born? That's, that's a really good question. I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's a little bit of both, but I certainly think it can be learned. And if someone doesn't have the innate deferred gratification gene, if you will, I don't think they're going to be attracted to investing in the first place. So right. they're probably doing something different anyway. But I, I definitely think it can be learned because uh, you have to, because it's not human nature to think long-term. It's not human nature to ignore the immediate feedback. And so you do have to kind of shape yourself to fit it. But I, I do think it there's some self-selection in the sense that if you weren't interested in that, trying to develop that discipline, you wouldn't be pursuing investing in the first place, I don't think. So um, I think one of the, the toughest things early on in anybody's business, because uh, they might have had a track record on somebody else's company, but they don't have it at their company, is raising the initial capital. 
was that difficult for you? And what was that, what was that whole thing like? It was, it was the first, the initial run was, uh, extremely humbling. You know, that's one of the, I think wonderful things I've learned from, from going out on my own is, uh, you do get humbled quickly, which is like a great thing. So the humility and patience that comes from it's been, been awesome. But to start, yeah, it was, it was very humbling. I kind of jumped, not sure how much capital I was going to have. I mean, I put every, pretty much every dime I had saved into it. And then I knew, you know, I had, I had some support from one of my mentors and then went around and I just had no idea really who, who was going to invest and who didn't. Some people who I thought were going to invest didn't. And some people I never thought would have uh, did, but you know, I just got started and, um, got started with, with enough to get going, but not a substantial amount by any means. And so it just took a lot of patience, a lot of willingness to just kind of go hat in hand and, 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 um, swallow my pride a little bit. But my sense is again, going back to like each person kind of playing their own game, you eventually kind of figure out how to just have a conversation. And it's not about like a sales push or anything. It just is, becomes an unfolding conversation. And does this become a win-win and when it's a win-win, it just works out. And learning that took a while and it was trial and error and seeing what worked and what didn't. But then it just starts to kind of unfold and has become a lot more natural. And then after time, you know, a lot of people are just watching to see, okay, is this guy really going to get going? Is right. this guy really going to do it? <laughs> and uh, then they see that. And, and then maybe hopefully if you put up some decent performance, then money starts to come a little bit and you get to a, a scale where you're, you're, have money from you know many different families and then they start telling their friends about it or relatives or so forth and it hopefully starts to kind of build on build on itself and, and i'm hopeful that that's kind of the point I've, I've reached here where you know just doing a good job for my investors you know builds itself yep your track record kind of speaks for itself do you, is it kind of like an ongoing like you're always raising capital or so if the returns aren't there and my existing investors aren't happy, then none of it's going to matter. So that's like priority one through 10. Right. I mean, is yeah. making sure my results are good. And, and, you know, I'm also fully invested in this myself. So it's, uh, again, that my, my incentives are aligned to compound the existing portfolio, but it is, yeah, it's open. And it, I come back to the kind of win win and it's, here's the process. Here's what I do. If this is of use, and make sense for somebody then 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 it kind of naturally happens and they'll want to get involved but it's not a active always out trying to you know raise money it's more like having lunch with someone and then saying hey i'm interested in what you're doing and it and it just happening or one of my existing investors emailing a person they know and saying hey you guys should meet and, and so you know I, I do send a quarterly letter out and that kind of helps i think get the word out a little bit but it's it's so yeah it's always open to investment, I would say, but it's not a real active process. Yeah. Who, uh, what's the, been the most influential book that you've ever read? So I love to read and, and I'm reading, I read all the time. It's hard to say one, cause in, in all different areas of, of life, I think it can be, they can be influential in different ways, but I'll give you a few. So, yeah. uh, we talked about Buffett and so from a professional standpoint, the Essays of Warren Buffett by Lawrence Cunningham is a good, just brief uh, compilation of the Berkshire letters. So just condensed down to a you know two to three hundred page book, and I would recommend people interested in investing to read that. 
from a personal standpoint, which has also helped in business, I think Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is an incredible book about basically finding your own meaning of life, playing your own game, as I've, I've, I've said in a couple answers here. And that book really changed my life in a lot of ways. And, and I would recommend anybody read that as well. Another anti-fragile, anti-fragile by uh, Nassim Taleb, I think is a, a terrific book. He's well known for Black Swan, but I, I personally love anti-fragile. I've read it, just read it for the second time. Uh, and I think it has a, he's such an independent thinker and can kind of point out a lot of the problems uh, with modernity, uh, modern times, if you will, that, you know, if you can avoid getting caught up in some of that thinking that people think you have to do is pretty liberating to kind of articulate ways to, to be independent. Yeah. And what was that book called? Anti-fragile. Anti-fragile. Speaking of like black swans and, and, and the future and investing, you're kind of balancing uh, what companies have done to date and kind of where they're going. Do you put more emphasis on the future or the past or depends or future? Yeah. Future uh, over and over because I mean, past is a good representation of the future, but I think another mistake that investors make, and I've, I've certainly made it, but you, most investors look through the rear view mirror when investing. And so chase, you know, they chase what's worked and what's been good in the past, but it, what matters is what's through the windshield. And so, yeah, it's all about what's happening going forward. And of course, a demonstrated track record from a company and the historical data matter quite a bit, but it, it doesn't matter uh, what that company's done from the investment standpoint, it only matters what's going to happen. Are you able to talk about any kind of trends or forward thinking thoughts you have about the world? I can talk about a couple of like themes specifically, and yeah. then I'm happy to also talk about market conditions too, if you want. Yep. But so going on the, the thematic point, I mean, there's a few things, obviously industries are digitizing rapidly. Um, I mean, you, I know you're extremely familiar with it, Chris, but the amount of industries that just came out of, I mean, nowhere to being the biggest companies in the world created out of just in the last two to three decades are you know, it's just massive industries that are going digital whether that's um, just new industries entirely through digital advertising things like that or old physical ways of doing things going digital like booking travel online online payments etc these are huge growing industries and a lot of them have winner take all effects that accrue to a few businesses. And those businesses generally are very high return on capital, high margin, can go anywhere in the world. And so it's just very efficient growth and very attractive growth. So that's just a huge obvious theme. And I think a lot of where that theme is starting to go is the physical and digital world are really melting, right? And it's changing. I, I don't think it can be I, keep, I try to keep my feet on the ground and be pretty level-headed, realistic person, but it's the zeitgeist of the time how much the digital world is changing the physical world. And right. th small examples, I mean, if you have a sensor on a motor that tells you that motor needs maintenance, instead of waiting on that motor to go out and replace it, you proactively fix that motor now, it's just so much more efficient. It's disinflationary in the sense that we're consuming less stuff. We're getting more efficient with our existing asset base. That's playing out everywhere. I know it relates to you know your thesis on uh, urban infill development, which right. I listened to. 
So that is changing everything. And I think if people open their eyes and, and a lot of people say they look at the tech boom and bust in the late nineties. And so they get skeptical and saying like, well, all these Silicon Valley people are header in the clouds and this isn't really happening. And, you know, maybe in some cases that's true. And, um, but this is affecting everything and every company has to go digital now. And so a big theme I'm investing behind is the merging of digital and physical businesses and companies that enable that. So that's a big one. Another, uh, I mentioned, you know, there's inevitables, inevitable trends around the world. I mean, the consuming class is growing massively and I can't remember all the data, but it's several, several hundred million people will enter the consuming middle class in the next handful of years in the Eastern hemisphere, whether it's India, China, et cetera. And those people want to live like we do and they want to consume our brands, consume services. They need healthcare services, et cetera. And so those trends are just pretty much happening. Mm -hmm. And so getting in front of those, um, are, are some of the big themes I see. What do you, what's your definition of, uh, somebody becoming a consumer? Yeah, it's a great, great question too. The, I can't remember the exact number, but there's a book, uh, factfulness by, uh, Hans Rosling. There's a, some great points from that, but he lays out all this data. And I think it's, I think it's like an income. He, he breaks it into four quadrants, but the income is about $16,000 a year is the definition of the income level. Okay. And that is growing, you know, I think just in China alone is growing from like 300 million right now to expected to grow to 600 million in the next five plus years wow. around there. So, and that's happening in a lot of places. Um, but I think 16,000 is the, the, the precise number, but it's still directionally is, is more the, the point. Yep. It's, uh, it's tougher for us in America to think about a life like that, but in most continents for a lot of people, they're just now entering into that world and it's an awesome thing. Sure. Well, you had mentioned maybe giving a little bit of your, uh, thoughts on the market. Yeah. And, and the, uh, I like the, the Howard Marks term where he, he would always say, we don't know where we're going, but we sure as hell better know where we are. Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of investing is admitting what you don't know right. and being humble enough to, to know what you don't know. And so predicting any macro, you know, macro variables with any certainty is just a shot in the dark. So I'll caveat it with that and that the economy is a complex system which means the variables are interdependent and can change very quickly. So I'm not, I don't make economic bets, but I do look at what are the conditions. So what does the playing field I'm on look like? Right. So I'm overwhelmingly focused on the businesses, but what is the field that, that we're operating on look like? And I think it's extremely favorable uh, to stocks. And there's a few reasons why, but if you look at stocks, S&P 500 right now is trading at about 16 times 2019 earnings. So that's about a 6% earnings yield, which is about average by historical standards. But as we know, I mean, look in commercial real estate or other asset classes, asset values are inverse to interest rates. Right. Stocks do not reflect a lower interest rate environment where most other asset classes do. So historically, the earnings yield on the S&P 500 has been pretty close to the 10-year yield on the treasury. Right now, I just said the earnings yield is close to 6% on the S&P 500, and the 10-year interest rate is 2.8%, 2.9%, something like that. 
So you're paying over 30 times earnings is what that definition is for a risk-free 10-year bond. And right. all that bond is going to do the next 10 years is pay you that interest. And that's pre-tax, by the way. A stock, if you own American business, if you own the S&P 500, you own, you're getting paid a 6% yield. And by the way, historically, those earnings have grown you know, 7% or so. And so 10 years from now based on a 7% coupon, that'll be double the yield. So that'll be a 12% yield if holding in 10 years time, which obviously that would get compressed. Yeah. So I think valuations are very sensible. Um, I, you know, who knows what the economy will do in the short run, but stock valuations for a long-term investor today are, are very sensible. And I think that one of the reasons why is sentiment is so negative. I think people were so badly burned in the late 90s, 2001 bust, and then in the 2008 financial crisis, and they just said, I'm, I'm done with stocks. And if you look at the data, money's actually flowed out of stocks, and it's gone into bonds and private equity. And I think part of that is, and this is kind of goes into the seem to love the anti-fragile part, you know, modernity uh, can't stand volatility. And so I think those who can stand volatility, there's a good opportunity in stocks. And, and um, that's the environment I see. But then you look some other factors. I mean, the last couple of months, the U.S. has grown jobs, 300,000 a month. Uh, so clearly the U.S. economy is in pretty good shape from that sense. U.S. consumer debt to GDP is below 80 percent, where pre-financial crisis it was about 100 percent. The banking system's in a lot better shape. We pre-financial crisis where the banks were about 30 times levered. Today, they're 10 times levered. So it's just a much different, it's a supportive environment. Sentiment is negative and uh, there's very little sign of inflation. And I think the reasons behind that inflation is uh, you have an aging population and then the disinflation I talked about from tech that, that has a deflationary impact on a lot of industries. I think that keeps inflation in check to an extent. And then labor force participation is still pretty low and climbing up, which, which provides a lot of slack in the labor economy. So what I see is valuations are sensible, the economy is supportive, sentiment on stocks is negative, yet American business is leading the way. Um, I mentioned those consumers in the emerging markets, they wanna consume our brands. Our tech companies are the envy of the world. And yeah. so um, long term, I think we're pretty well positioned from that sense. Yeah, it's it is difficult. I, I love that you what you said, not just uh, the opinion, but that it seemed to be your opinion on things. I guess the follow up to that uh, and just something I think about all the time is with the rampant availability of information. How do you not leak into group think? And, uh, you know, it sounds like you, uh, for me personally, I, you're always fighting it. And, uh, how do you think about that, that, that you're not leaking into just, you know, your, your opinions, what you just last read? Yeah. And I, I don't, I would say, I don't worry so much about being in group think as, as much worry about, is this my own independent thought? And I've always been kind of a lone wolf independent type person. So I don't generally naturally fall into group think I don't think although that is a powerful thing but I think you know I don't read much sell side research which is from the investment banks they send out research and it's the same stuff that everybody reads I, right. I purposefully don't read much of that I read the primary information from the companies I mentioned the SEC filings that you know it's straight from 
the company's mouth in a legal filing. So it's not really interpreted through a lens. Yeah. And then, you know, just kind of having your own firm where you can take it your own way. And by the way, hundred percent ownership in the firm, yeah. all my money's in there. So I better be thinking for myself. So I, I think it's just setting up incentives is a big one to, to make sure you're thinking for yourself and then insulating yourself from the environment. You mentioned the just abundance of information today. And I love the quote, you know, wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. And so I actually try to limit the amount of information I take in. And there was a long time where I just thought doing something was productive and that I needed to spin my wheels and consume as much information. And that's naturally my personality is to just do a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I've actually, you know, kind of had a motto to do less uh, at times and try to do more thinking and less doing. So setting, you know, direction is more important than speed. So thinking about what direction I'm going in as opposed to how fast I'm going. Yep. Wow. I need to write that on uh, my whiteboard. Direction is greater than speed. Yeah, we had Brian Perkins on the podcast. Listen to that one. And we, we had a fascinating conversation on thinking and how it's so underrated. And, uh, you know, Charlie and Warren, they're probably the, the best at it, just sitting in a room for three or four hours and just thinking. I am on that same path, trying to get more just kind of do nothing and it's amazing how you can quote unquote solve the world's problems in your head if you just give yourself enough time to to think about them so love to hear that you're doing that well I'll throw in one thing to to wrap up what you had just discussed and Charlie uh, said it very well but he said microeconomics is our business and macroeconomics is what we deal with yeah and that really tied true to just kind of your thought is I can't tell you what's going to happen in the next you know, that's not my job. My job is to tell you like what's happening today and you know how that could lead us going forward. Rhett, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, fascinating the business that you're growing and just to hear about how you think about the world. I would love to spend more time uh, offline just chatting more about all of those things and appreciate you coming to Fort Worth to visit with me. Likewise. Thanks, Chris. And thanks for having me in. It's a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes. It will help more folks discover each episode. You can also reach me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris or our email at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.